Hello friends and welcome. I hope you all woke up this morning with medicine on your mind. I know I sure did. My name is Sonia Surya and I am so excited that you're here with me on this unique journey in exploring various medical fields and how to navigate the educational and professional pathways within them. If you're like me and are thinking of a career in healthcare or are even just interested in hearing about different careers in general, keep listening to hear from a real professional about their personal experiences and advice. There is no better way to explore the field of medicine. And of course, if you enjoy this episode and others, feel free to share this podcast with friends and family. My main goal here is to bring as much knowledge as I can to as many different people as possible. So with that, let's get right into our interview for the day. Today, we're really lucky to be joined by an amazing neurosurgeon who is going to give us some deep insight into his career and specialization, as well as advice for our listeners. Um, So to start out, could you please introduce yourself? So your name, career, where you're from and where you live now, and then maybe some things you do outside of work too. Sure. Uh, Well, first of all, thank you for uh, uh, inviting me to this podcast and hopefully... (laughs) Hopefully, this will be helpful uh, to a number of individuals that will be listening to it sometime in the future. Um, My name is Shekhar Kurpad. Uh, I am a uh, native of Bangalore uh, in southern India. And uh, I currently live in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, where I've lived for the last 18 years. Um, I'm a neurosurgeon. Uh, I'm what's better known as a surgeon scientist, so or a physician scientist, uh, and what that means is that I wear um, four hats. Um, in the medical world, this is also known as uh, quadruple threat, uh, and what that means is I have uh, my job involves uh, doing surgical work on patients with uh, brain and spine problems. I do approximately. 400 operations a year, between three and 400 operations a year. Um, and then, so that's the clinical hat. And uh, the second hat is a research hat. Um, and this is, uh, this involves running a laboratory, doing neuroscience research. My, my area of research and what I'm passionate about is neurotrauma, uh, uh, specifically spinal cord injury. Um, and uh, doing research involves writing for and getting grants and other sources of funding to do things that would change the way medicine and in in my case neurosurgery is practiced in the future so that's sort of the futuristic part of my work Um, and then uh, the third hat is the teaching hat so that involves mentoring uh, all the way from high school students to college students who do shadowings and rotations with me as well as medical students and postgraduate medical students who do residency and then post-residency students who do fellowships Mm -hmm. specializing in spinal surgery and and brain surgery. Um, And then I also mentor like post, like research students, like uh, masters and PhD students who I I serve as a mentor for. That's the teaching hat. And the last of the four hats is the administrative hat. And that involves uh, running my department and uh, neurosciences uh, uh, service line uh, at my health system. Um, We are a $5 billion health system, roughly. And uh, neurosciences accounts for uh, roughly 
um, between 500 million to 750 million, so half a billion to three quarters billion enterprise uh, in the health system. Uh, and so I'm, I'm, I'm the leader of that enterprise and we have about 250 employees and I'm responsible for supervising them, making sure they meet their goals, evaluating them, uh, as well as mentoring a lot of the uh, neurosurgeons and scientists in the neurosciences uh, in our health system. And then the last hat I wear, which is I guess the fifth hat, is um, um, organized neurosurgery, which means that I'm part of a national, many national, international organizations that uh, that primarily are focused towards disseminating specialized neurosurgery knowledge throughout the world. Uh, for example, bringing uh, areas that are not as advanced uh, and equipping them with. Uh, basic knowledge and equipment so they can render uh, proper neurosurgical care to their patients in, in those areas like poor countries like in Africa and, and so on, as well as uh, collaborating with similar ecosystems like the United States, like Europe, for example, where we meet and share ideas, give talks and learn from each other so that we may jointly grow the field and develop it for the future. The underlying premise in this five hat type job, which is a busy job, as one might imagine, is that medicine is not a static field. Uh, what I learned 25 years ago is not true today because mm -hmm. things have advanced quite a bit. So um, part of my goal is to use my mentorship hat, teaching hat, as well as my research hat to change underlying concepts in the field. So for example, just to give you one example, I, uh, we were taught that when a person has a stroke uh, or a spinal cord injury, that the recovery is impossible. Uh, there was no such thing as the brain or the spinal cord adapting to losing part of itself, which is what happens right. in a stroke or an injury. Uh, but now through research that has happened during my career, including my own research, uh, we've now found that the nervous system has a lot of what's known as plasticity, mm -hmm. which means that it can adapt and restore function if you were able to figure out what survived uh, a disease, like a stroke or an injury in the nervous system, and you're able to harness what's surviving to, to restore function to the human being. Neurosurgery is a special field because um, I think, obviously I'm passionate about it, mm -hmm. and and I tell my mentees uh, at all levels that if I had 10 more chances to reinvent myself uh, with, a, with a different career, I would choose this uh, every single time. Uh, stated differently, I would choose this career um, every day of the week and twice on Sunday. Um, there is nothing else I would rather do. And, uh, and so I, neurosurgery is, is special because you can actually intervene and make people better and that's true for all of medicine. You know, a heart surgeon can, you know, make the heart more healthy. Right. So it, it, many, many fields in medicine are designed to restore life. But neurosurgery is special because not only does it restore life, but it restores humanity to human beings. It, it, neuros, neuroscience of the brain and the spinal cord is what makes humans human. Right. And so I, I think that, you know, if you imagine like your loved one or your friend, uh, without their personality or without their quirks or without their specific talents with their hands or their eyes or their 
sense of smell, taste, or touch, then you would not really that that person would cease to exist. Yeah. And so, neuroscience is the science of making that person who they are. And when they lose function or they get a disease, to restore them to who they are. So, uh, it's 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 some people have said it's the art of. It's actually more than a science. It's the art of restoring humanity to human beings. So, uh, so that's why I'm, I'm particularly passionate, and I think it's a differentiator. Um, and I mean, it does give one a good career and a good living, but like a lot more important and a lot more deep than that is the passion yeah. uh, uh, of of and the reward of seeing uh, being the vehicle of change of thought and being able to think differently and then actually be trained to do the research to actually prove some concepts and then then translate that into real uh real treatments of people right that's amazing um very cool um i know that you talked about you know what you're passionate about why you're passionate about neurosurgery in general and you did talk about your work specifically with spinal cord and spinal cord injury and things like that so why did you pick like what originally interested you about neurosurgery and how did you come into these more specific lines? I, this is an interesting question because I had no idea that I was interested in neurosurgery. Um, I was actually in, in growing up in India after high school, I was in a reasonably good engineering college, learning how to be a, like a mechanical production engineer uh, and maybe switch to computer science. Uh, when I was growing up, most young uh, boys and girls and young men and women, we were all about between 17 and 18, like people are in the United States when they finish high school. Uh, and that's what I was doing. And um, one fine day, I found that my dad was in my dorm room. Uh, this college that I was at was about 10 hours away from home. Um, and so I was living there. And so he was there because he had uh, received... Uh, some news that I got into medical school um, and my family wanted me to try going to medical school. It sounds, sounds ridiculous stated that way, but it was actually true. Uh, and that's how things used to work out in 1980s India. Uh, most people who are first generation immigrants who grew up in their teen years in the eighties will identify with this. Yeah. And, and, uh, and so, so I, I said, okay, what have I got to lose? I'll try medical school for a month and then see if I like it. And then if I don't pass out when I do the cadaver dissection, <laughs> then I might stay. And so I ended up not passing out. And and most people in India are, you know, um, good at um, reading and retaining knowledge that they've read and then writing exams. Right. Uh, so I was also one of those people that were reasonably good at that. So I always got good grades in medical school ended up staying but in inside mentally I was kind of lost because I felt this was a very repetitive you know regurgitating process uh, which is one of the reasons as a sidetrack I like the education system in the United States when I see my kids go through it yeah. because they're taught concepts and they're not taught by rote hmm. uh, so we were taught by rote and medical school seemed to be an extension of that so that was five years long I got good very good grades you know I stood out uh, in some subjects at the top of my class and and then and then I had this idea that I needed to do research because I felt like I didn't want to be like another technician or a practitioner. I wanted to do that and also do some research to question some of the underlying concepts in the field, to question the dogma that existed in the field and then maybe try and change it. 
I have no idea why I felt that way, but I just felt that way. Mm-hmm. And then that's why I came to the States and enrolled in a PhD program. So I was doing research, which I also didn't like very much after having started it because it was too basic. Uh, the basic science, basic biology of research was completely disconnected from clinical medicine. But my my concept was vague at the time and not well developed as it is now in hindsight. But what I wanted to do was I wanted to do research that actually made a difference to, to patients. So I, this is called translational research. Mm. I didn't know what it was called at the time. So I wanted to do something that I could own and then bring it to the clinic and help patients with the product of that research. So this is the biggest windfall of my life uh, is that I met uh, a professor. uh, So I did my PhD at Duke University and and I'm an alumnus of Duke. Um, And so um, I met this professor who was doing the kind of work with brain tumors that I wanted to do. Brain tumors just happened to be what he was doing work in, but he was his ideas were the same. He wanted to develop concepts in the lab, and and he wanted to bring it to the clinic. And so I, I, I one day I met him and I said I want to work with you, and he said okay that's fine. What do you want to do afterwards? And he still quotes it back to me today. I, I, apparently I told him that I'm going to finish and I'm going to go back to India and start a neuroscience institute. <laughs> and which has actually happened here. So he was he was it was not that far yeah. off. And so, and so he um, gave me a project. Um, I still didn't know if I really liked research, but he gave me this project. And the project involved doing microsurgery, long microsurgical experiments on small animals, so mice and, and rats, which are very common laboratory animals. And we had to implant a brain tumor, a human brain tumor into their, into their brains. And then we had to specifically do microsurgery to try and treat it with various types of uh, chemotherapy drugs as well as antibodies. And it was important to do it right, the surgical procedure right, because one of the problems that they were having at the time was that my the guy that was doing these experiments before me, uh, he was losing a lot of these animals because they're a valuable resource. They cost a lot of money. And, and three months into it, I was enjoying it because I got to spend six, seven hours a day doing surgery on these small small animals. One day I got called into his lab, or his office, my boss's office, and I thought I was going to lose my job and I had to go back to India. So I was trying to figure out as I walked into his office, how I was going to tell my parents that, you know, USA didn't work out. And and I walked in and he, he, he asked me uh, how I was liking the work with these experiments. And I said, well, I really enjoy it. And, and he said, well, uh, you seem to be getting a lot of these animals to survive. Uh, and I said, I looked at him a little bit strangely and I said, I said, I thought that was the point uh, to get them to survive. And he said, yes, yes, this is, that is the point. And he said that uh, the guy that was doing the, this, this, this project before me couldn't get them to survive. So he said, he told me that he thought I should be a neurosurgeon. So I had no idea. It was my mentor's idea. Yeah. I go into the field. And then from, I remember that day like it was yesterday. Uh, it was... Uh, April of 1993, uh, about a year and a half after I came to the States. And since that day, I've never looked back. Uh, I I think I'm one of the few people that has found a field which I'm both passionate about and I like to think I'm good at. Uh, It just comes naturally. And so so I'm very blessed is what I feel because I I feel like a fish in water when I, when I, when I, when I'm in, when I'm doing my, my work. So, 
So I think I owe a lot of gratitude to him. And then other things lined up after that. You know, he, my boss, uh, my, my, my mentor actually uh, uh, formed a committee to guide me through a PhD. One needs to have a committee of five people who are also PhDs to guide a student uh, and then question their research uh, to grant them their PhD. It's a four-year process. And one of the committee members that I had ended up winning the Nobel Prize. And so, um, so she was an unbelievable woman. And uh, it's very hard for an Indian physician who did his medical schooling in India to get into a surgical field in the US. And neurosurgery is probably the hardest field to get into because every year there's only about 150 students, medical school graduates that get into neurosurgery in the entire United States. Wow. Uh, and so I was one of three foreign medical graduates that got in in the year that I got into neurosurgery. And it was largely because my mentor wrote, wrote, must have written a very good letter. I still don't know what the contents of it are, but it must have been good enough. Uh, and so, and this lady that won the Nobel Prize, obviously that comes with a lot of uh, credibility to get a letter from something, from, from someone like that. And so, uh, so I was able to get in. And, and once I started my residency training, uh, I have yet to look back. So it's been a, it's been a fantastic journey uh, and I've had the good fortune to be in a position to mentor many other students who are in my position, uh, who have now become very successful neurosurgeons uh, in the United States. Um, so I'm not sure if that answered the question. It was very long-winded. That's uh, great. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, thank you. That's, that's really good. Um, so I did see that you have, I think you have some really unique exposure to medicine from all over the world, obviously because you did school in India and also the United States, but um, it looks like you also have experience in places like Sweden and Canada, et cetera. Um, and so what similarities and differences have you noticed about being a surgeon and a medical practitioner in general in these different areas of the world? Well, I think there's nuances. Um nuances um, are in, in neurosurgery are generated by two things. Uh, one is difference in resources, which is true of a lot of the world. Uh, India has a dichotomous system. Um, there's a private hospital system in India that is every bit as good as what we have in the United States. Mm -hmm. And it's another system, parallel system, that is really living in the 1980s and 1990s. Mm -hmm. Uh, which is the vast majority of what the people in India have access to. So part of, so the Indian and, and then the continent of Africa is, uh, is with the exception of South Africa and probably Egypt uh, is significantly lacking in basic neurosurgical, life-saving neurosurgical facilities and equipment. So for example, if someone has a trauma and they have a skull fracture and they have a blood clot on their brain, in, in, in Central Africa, for example, they have at least a tenfold lesser chance of survival uh, compared to, you know, if the same person had the same type of injury, let's say in New York City. And so, so you know, there's wide disparities uh, in terms of resources. Uh, so that's, that's obviously the difference between um, the, I don't like to say the third world because I think that's that itself is a disparaging statement. And so, but I think in the poorer countries, there is a significant resource limited uh, capability to render advanced neurosurgical care. So, yeah. uh, and then 
in the in the more developed countries like uh, like Canada and like Sweden or rest of the European Germany and other countries that I visit fairly often uh, pre-COVID of course um, there is a difference in philosophy like the 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 structure of the treatment uh, uh, machine the hospital systems are different in the United States uh, you know true to the spirit of this country there is a lot of independence and you know uh, access to resources whereas in, in places like Sweden and places like Germany and, and other countries in Europe like that you 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 end up you know very few people end up getting the big professor like the more senior person to take care of them because um, you know the, 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 the more the more common uh, ailments are cared for by more in a, by, by less experienced people that's one thing the other thing is there is also there is a i think that in europe and in other places um the 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 quality of neurosurgical education is extremely high like it is in the united states but it is not as structured as in the united states the united states has a very very strong and strict curriculum that is based in quality so that everybody who graduates from a neurosurgical training program is at minimum able to be a safe neurosurgeon. Uh, the nature of the training programs in other countries are not, there are some that are exceptional uh, and on par with any of the best places in the United States, but there are others who, which are not as, uh, uh, the quality control is not as good. Uh, so the denominator is a little bit different in, depending on where a person trains. And then the, the last thing is the United States is uh, much more commercially based. And some people see that as a good thing because it forces innovation, it rewards innovation. So a lot of the new, it's not that Europe and Canada don't come up with uh, brilliant ideas. Uh, and they have, certainly they have their share of like uh, extremely high level contributions to the field. Um, um, but the United States, the, the sheer number of uh, contributions in terms of advancements uh, outweigh other places in the world. And, and that's not necessarily true in neurosurgery. It's true of pretty much everything in terms of technological advancement. Mm. Um, so I think, and, and, from, and, then, and, then, and then that's the plus side of the innovation in the U.S. The minus side is that, you know, medicine costs more here. I think Europe right. and Canada are better off. Because on average, the cost of neurosurgical care in Europe and Canada is far less than the United States. And, and if you really look at population science uh, from a neurosurgery and neuroscience perspective, from a population science perspective, there's really no difference in outcomes. So, you know, some people who are looking at health economics would tell you that the uh, systems in Europe, European countries and Canada are are geared towards making sure that the population becomes healthy at a lower cost. Uh, but on the other hand, we, I think, in the United States are at the tip of the spear because we are able to have the financial resources to really change and change frequently the status quo in the field, as with other fields as well. So mm -hmm. that's, the, that, that's my, much my sense about poorer countries versus the USA and you know, wealthier countries like those in Europe and Canada versus the USA. Yeah, that's a great perspective. Um, so I know that you said that you worked in specific fields or in specific lines in your field and neurosurgery is a broad field, but how do you 
think your work in the brain and spinal cord that you've done crosses over to your work with speech and audiology, which I saw that you do? Yeah, so the speech and audiology pieces, um, I, I just am a guest uh, lecturer at a sister university in, in Milwaukee uh, called Marquette University. It's a Jesuit school, and um, in the past, I've given lectures to the students there. And um, in general, we go back to the concept of plasticity. I think one of the things that has come about from my laboratory and other laboratories' work is that it has um, it has um, uh, shown that um, uh, one can use biological agents, and by that I mean a var- various number of agents like stem cells and growth factors and stuff like that, um, in a way to um, rewire the nervous system um, so that you can um, you can generate function, and then also to um, to uh, 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 to essentially have surviving nerve cells and supporting cells in the nervous system take over the function of cells that are lost or areas of the brain or spinal cord that are lost. So the concept of plasticity is is relevant in neurotrauma. It's also relevant in in you know situations that end up with in, where patients end up with speech loss or hearing loss. Um, again, the, the tools to restore speech and hearing, they're, they're myriad. There are so many of them. Uh, but the concepts of neural plasticity underlie restoration of function of any neurological function, among which include movement of the arms and legs. It could be hearing. It could be speech. Uh, it could be um, understanding of uh, spoken and written concepts. It could be reading. It could be vision, it could be taste, smell, uh, it could be the power to correlate uh, from past experiences based on wiring from memory. So all of these, quote, human functions, unquote, um, that, are, that, are, that are sort of put forth by the wiring uh, of the central nervous system um, um, are subject to plasticity. So my work um, is a part of what plasticity can do in neurotrauma, and the concepts, uh, as you ask, are, are applicable to restora- restoration of any other type of neurological function as well. Thank you. That's so interesting. Um, so I don't want to take up too much more time, but I did want to ask, um, just because there's so much lack of shadowing opportunities right now, especially with COVID, uh, I think it's really important for people to hear about a realistic approach or a realistic perspective of what someone's life is in a certain field so would you be able to walk me through um a day in your life so what and what your work-life balance is like in the field that you're in sure um are you talking pre or post-covid i guess pre-covid so pre-covid like i'll a perspective of a week is i typically work six days in a week um and i try to be disciplined to take one day off. So when I say off, that means I'm disconnected. Uh, I don't do emails. I don't do, I do nothing that has to do with my job for one day of the week. Um, And then for the other six days, I probably spend for two days, I operate, you know, all day. um, And I operate and schedule meetings in between the surgical procedures in a way that you know, the procedures are done and they have a window of time to go to meetings and things like that. One of the other days I see uh, patients in clinic. Uh, nowadays, 
about 60% of my clinic is virtual. Uh, so I sit in my office and, you know, see about 25 patients in a day uh, in, in, in quote, clinic, unquote, uh, which is a virtual clinic. And then the remaining two days, I do uh, research and administration. So, so that's how a week. So research would involve, for example, I don't actually do uh, bench work experiments anymore. I have a lot of a, a large number of people in the laboratory, scientists and students and technicians that do the experiments. But I plan the research. I help coordinate it. I write grants, I edit grants, uh, those sorts of things. And part of the administrative work includes, you know, running my uh, neuroscience service line or running the neuroscience service line, my health system, my department, um, educational programs, as well as organized neurosurgery, like conference calls and WebExes for international teaching, international uh, writing papers. Um, I've written uh, probably uh, well over 100 papers now that are peer-reviewed and, and almost overall uh, over 300 publications at this point. So I like to write. And so these are the kinds of things I do on the other two days. Um, so so it's a, if you, if you look at a week, 40% uh, of the week roughly is spent doing surgical work. Um, probably 20% of the week is spent directly interacting with patients. And another 40% is spent uh, doing research and administration. That's in a five-day week. And the sixth day is a catch-up day. So I, you know, all the emails and other uh, uh, things that need to be done to plan for the following week. And I'm very particular about this. I, I don't start a week without having spent a day planning that week because I feel like one has 50% of the things that happen in a given week, you could have planned ahead and the other 50%, you're forced to react to it. So, you, but, but when you're prepared to, for half of what's going to happen next week, you're better off and you have a more successful week. And then and then I have this thing called the reward structure. So I, this is something I tell my tell my students and, and mentees, is that the life of a surgeon scientist is based on two kinds of reward. The first is a daily reward, and the other is an annual reward. And the daily reward is when you do a you do a bunch of surgeries in a given day, you see a bunch of patients in a given day, you drive back and say, okay, I helped a number of people today directly. Mm -hmm. It made a difference in their lives. You know. Somebody who was paralyzed now can walk, or somebody who couldn't speak can now has a chance of speaking again. Um, you know, somebody who had tumor in their spinal cord, who was losing their bladder and bowel function, has now been uh, rescued from that, and and so on. That's the daily reward. And then research has a much different timeline. So when you plan a research project or write a paper, the effect of it you don't feel for several months and sometimes years. You don't actually see concepts, um, concepts like stem cell research as is relevant to spinal cord injury were sort of concepts in people's minds when I was still a resident in Sweden uh, or a fellow in Sweden. And right about now, it's actually starting to get into clinical trials. That's almost a two decade span. So at the end of every year, I look at the year and say, okay, how many papers did I was I able to write and how many of those are really relevant and you know what, how can they make a difference? So the research work, yields an annual reward and so so one has to switch one sense of satisfaction between research and clinical uh, from a daily to an annual you know phase if you will mm -hmm. so so i think i think um, um, that's sort of how my week goes so you asked me about work-life balance um, and then the and then the seventh day i like to reserve for 
I mean, it's not that I'm not around. I mean, every evening I'm around at home, um, you know, with kids and family and everything. But but one day of the week, like I'm 100% there. Uh, of course, I have teenage kids, and and now uh, they don't want necessarily <laughs> to be, you know, spending a whole day with their mom and dad. It's not cool. It's considered cool potentially. So, but if they should want to do so, I'm available for that one day. Right. Uh, so, so you know, sometimes it works out and sometimes it doesn't. And so, if it doesn't, I read other things. You know, I, I have a lot, lot of other interests, and so I like to uh, do other things uh, if I have free time. I'm also very disciplined about exercise um, and prayer. Um, I feel like I came from a, I come from a culture that is uh, very uh, spiritually oriented. And we do, like I do a morning prayer of 10 to 15 minutes. And if I don't center myself, the surgical procedures won't go right that day. Mm-hmm. So I've learned this. So this is like a lifelong learning. Um, so I'm disciplined about exercise, which is almost a daily occurrence. And then also with meditation, things like that, which is also almost a daily occurrence. Um, if not every day, at least six, six out of seven days. Uh, I'm not all that religious, but I'm reasonably religious. Um, but I have a number of other varied interests, um, including physical exercise. I, I like to run. I like to bike. I like to uh, go to the gym and lift. Um, you know, I like to uh, I like to read and collect wine. I like to uh, I enjoy uh, learning about bourbon, and um, I I like to read other things that have nothing to do with medicine. Uh, I particularly like to read about economics. Mm. Um, and so um, uh, I have a, I would say I have a curious mind. Um, I turned 50 recently, but uh, I feel like there's a lot of things left to learn. Uh, and sometimes I learn a lot from the kids because they have an insight into social media and uh, uh, messaging in ways that I have, I have no concept about. So I always enjoy hearing their perspective, especially about the ongoing issues nowadays. I yeah. feel like I have very, very poignant conversations with my daughter. Um, I'm a staunch conservative with liberal, um, but very liberal uh, values. Uh, fiscally, I'm, financially, I'm extremely conservative. And uh, I enjoy having conversations about... Um, our political landscape with my daughter, which I've had a fair number recently. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, and I think it's important as parents that, you know, so, so I spent a lot of time in terms of work-life balance, which is where this question came from. I spent a lot of time trying to enrich my mind with concepts that have nothing to do with neurosurgery for at least, you know, uh, 15, 20% of, of a given week. Yeah. No, I can completely relate to that. My, my dad and I also love to talk about the political uh, landscape all the time. So that's really great that you're able to do that. Um, My last question before we wrap this up is just a broad um, to any young listener that's listening right now and is interested in pursuing medicine and possibly even neurosurgery specifically, what would be like the one biggest piece of advice that you'd want to give them? Follow your passion. Um, I don't think one should make any decision about any field because it gives you a good job or it gives you um, a certain amount of financial security. I mean, of course, one needs to be wise uh, about choices in life. Like anybody needs to be life. Anybody needs to be wise about choices in life. But, uh, but I think 
if if you find something you're passionate about and if that happens to be neurosurgery that's great uh don't take the word no for an answer um and keep trying if you're passionate about something because if you're passionate about something you'll be good at that and then if you're good at that that has a way of rewarding you financially in ways that you don't even, you may not even know so just right. my, this is my my life learning has been i was lost in early medical school for almost a decade from switching from engineering to medicine to finding a passion in neurosurgery that that time span was roughly about 8 8 and a half to 9 years but then for the last 27 years i have uh just gone from um uh being very satisfied to being extremely satisfied with 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 my career so uh, and i think everything else as a person comes out of it because if you're passionate about what you do and you succeed at what you do then i think there's a lot of other plus points that come out of it and so so i think it's important to uh and i say this to every student that comes my way from middle school high school college medical school post medical school as well as fellowship as well as um neurosurgeons fully qualified uh that are like more junior to me uh with lesser experience than i than i do that they're early in their career uh i tell them to follow their passion yeah Yeah, that's great and that makes total sense. Um thank you so much for that. Um so yeah, I just wanted again to say thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate you coming and sharing your advice and your life story with everyone. I truly think that, you know, like listening to people's life experiences helps others um center their own life if that makes sense. So, I think that a lot of people will really enjoy listening to this. So, thank you so much. You're welcome and thank you for having me. Of course. Bye-bye. Bye. Wasn't it just so wonderful to hear from such an incredible professional? I truly hope you were able to think medicine with me today. Again, my name is Sonia Surya and I'm from Portland, Oregon in the United States. I'm always open to hearing new ideas that I can try out. If you have ideas for me, want to learn something more, or just want to send me your thoughts, click the voice message button on my profile at anchor.fm/thinkmedicine or send it directly through the link anchor.fm/thinkmedicine/message. I'd love to hear from you all directly and I'm open to expanding the type of content I offer. If you enjoyed this episode, share this podcast with someone who you think would love it as well. Thank you for being here today and I'll talk to you again on the next episode of Think Medicine with Sonia.